From Covenant Shreveport, this is Origins of the Faith. Chapter 7, School for Sinners, A Structure That Fits. We're currently in this first section, or I guess it's really the second section of Shelley's book. First section was the age of Jesus and the apostles. We're in this second section called the age of Catholic Christianity, and he um, says that 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 period of time is from like 70 A.D. to 312 A.D. So Mm -hmm. he's starting at the very end of the first century, even, even while maybe some of the apostles were still alive. And, and calling that the beginning of, of really kind of the age of the church. And so for the last few episodes, we've been looking at some of the different elements of this Catholic Christianity or this universal Christianity that he describes. And you and I were talking about, just before we started recording, just about how as we start to get now into chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 10 that we're now several generations removed from Jesus and the apostles. Mm -hmm. And there are problems with the church from the very beginning, but now like, we're starting to see more and more things kind of added to the church, um, new powers given to certain people, um, new heresies that pop up along the way, and, um, and as a result, a lot of problems as well. And so this is a, a period of time, I think, where um, the church as we know it today in many ways really starts to take shape Yeah. because the church as we know it today is very different from the church of the apostles. Yeah, but at the same time, there, there are similarities. And now that I think about it, what you and I talked about and what we're getting into today is the role of the bishops and kind of the organic growth of the church into this hierarchy. But, but you see that in the New Testament. You see the church facing its struggles, facing outside influence of persecution and, and heresy. Um, the different epistle writers talk to these issues, and you have those problems of authority. Uh, I think about it's uh, Third John, right? This this kind of domineering, authoritative figure. So so we have all of these problems, but they're in miniature almost. Yeah. And what we're getting at now in Shelley's book is like these problems have taken a, a grand scale. Mm. Well, you have people, right? Well, y- yeah. People are all up in the midst of this. Yeah. And we we have a tendency to think of, even though we know this isn't true, I think we have a tendency to think of the apostles as being sinless or at least so holy that there's no, you know, there is no issue in their life. And... That's not true. These were still men, and certainly the people that come after them are still men, and they're still sinners in need of a Savior, and they still wrestle with sin. And they're also wrestling with the effects of persecution. Uh, they're wrestling with, uh, early on, not a lot of um, theological writing or thought outside of Scripture itself. Um mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of, as a result, a lot of differences of opinion on how to think about certain things, which we've talked about a little bit. But one of the things that does become clear is that 
if the church is going to be an organization of some kind and not just this sort of loose, organic affiliation of different disparate groups, Mm -hmm. then there has to be some level of leadership and authority that is codified. Right. And this is what Shelley calls the episcopate, right? This is that those those early offices of of presbyter or elder um, and deacon, what gets then added to it is this role of bishop, which you talked about a minute ago. And I think a lot of that, some of that was very natural, that you had these leaders that stepped up into this maybe kind of higher level of leadership that was outside of just one local church and maybe over several local churches. But, but that is a change, and there are some challenges that come out of that. And this is something that Shelley talks about, too, in this chapter. In fact, pretty early on, as he, as he mentions the introduction of the bishop, of the role of the bishop, and starts talking about a couple of these individuals, one of the biggest challenges still to the church is heresy. It, it, it hasn't gone away just because we've talked about it over the last couple of chapters, and it's like, now we know all of the heresies out there, so they won't be a problem anymore. They sure. just keep growing and keep showing their face again and again. And so the the response of the church is to follow this succession of authority in mm-hmm. the way that and this is maybe this will be me playing the skeptic because this is more of an open-ended question shelley mentions the church is able to follow a succession right. of bishops back to the apostles and i would assume if we're talking about rome in that area probably back to peter mm-hmm. so by doing this are they finding folks who kind of on their own resigned and handed off this this leadership or was this just and, and maybe it's a mixed bag. Maybe these are areas where one of the presbyters steps up over multiple churches mm-hmm. or just calls out another guy to take his role. But in whatever way it seems that in the face of these especially Gnosticism, in the face of these heresies, right. the church is able to say, No, no, you don't have some special knowledge. In fact, the knowledge and the teaching that we have goes back to the apostles a couple hundred years ago. Right. So the the big difference between Gnosticism and Christianity with regards to what we're talking about is that with Gnosticism, they with true, you know, pagan Gnosticism, they claimed they had special knowledge that had been given to them by Christ and that it had only been given to a few special people. And that that special knowledge to some extent has been handed down. And yet it's still secret, like it is not public knowledge. The, the Christian counter to that was to go, um, Jesus not only gave his gospel to his disciples or the apostles, but that apostolic teaching, that gospel, has then been handed down to subsequent generations, which is the quote-unquote apostolic succession that you're talking about. And... This is public knowledge. This is knowledge. This is knowledge that we are proclaiming out in the open, and it is for all people. It is not some hidden secret that once you work through the the levels or the steps, we'll share the secret with you. Yeah. Right. Okay. It's something that's for everybody, and it's it's for um, those who are educated and those who are uneducated, those who are rich, those who are poor, Jew, Greek. That's Everybody, right. right? So I think that's that's a big part of what they are trying to combat with 
this idea of apostolic succession. Okay. It seems like there's two levels of it to me. There is this level where there's something we're trying to push back against by essentially writing down these lists of bishops. Mm-hmm. The other side of it is just general record keeping and and going, hey, who are the people that are in leadership in the church and who came before them and who came before them? That's not a weird thing to do in any way, shape, or form. Right. Um, the problem comes when, potentially the problem comes when people start to claim certain powers as a result of kind of falling into this line of succession. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the things that Shelley gets at in this chapter, is that as bishops become more the norm, it becomes this thing where they start to claim and wield certain powers that up until that point have been somewhat murky within mm-hmm. the church. And in particular, the power to forgive. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that's that's one of the two main points that Shelley's making in this in this chapter. So it's kind of divided into two parts, which is what do we make of the bishops? What what does this office mean and how do people react to it? Which mm-hmm. I, I really like coming from a Roman Catholic background without a without a ton of knowledge around why this hierarchy existed coming from that into a Protestant background where it was more or less like a stiff hand to it. Mm. Um, so seeing what did people originally make of this office and then seeing how did this office and the church as a global whole deal with sin, deal with some of the, the bigger questions that came after folks were believers and involved in churches and then like, what do we do now? So that So maybe we can start with these different approaches or different responses to the bishops because he kind of Shelley kind of outlines three of them and it's a like all things there's a spectrum right so mm-hmm. you get you get the folks that seem to be conservative and say that this this process of electing bishops or having a hierarchy like this is anti biblical or is or is a bad move it's mm-hmm. establishing some human doctrine and human authority that was never meant to be the case. Mm-hmm. You get folks in the middle, these folks who want to adapt the the organization and the structure of the church to the cultural times and f- folks that would be able to say, look, we're not 12 churches in a few different parts of this empire anymore. We're talking about hundreds, if not thousands of these Jesus communities. Right. And so a structure is necessary. And then you get folks on the other end of the spectrum which would take this structure and cling so tightly to it that it would become kind of what you or, or maybe we didn't mention it we didn't mention it uh, in the podcast I think but what you were just talking about with like the level of human authority being elevated to mm-hmm. the Bible and so that would be more along the lines of what we know today as maybe the Roman Catholic Church but also the the Anglican Church who are very staunch in their belief about the hierarchy with bishops. Um, so to go back through those kind of three levels and, and tease them out a little bit, he first says, some Christians argue that those who are guided, that those who guided the destiny of the early church willfully and sinfully departed from a divinely authorized pattern so that the changes they made should be repudiated and reversed. Mm-hmm. So this would be that first group, um, what, he, what he calls um, back to the Bible groups. Yeah. 
um, people who are like, we we somehow need to get back to this perceived purity of the church in Acts, um, even though the church in Acts clearly had problems. Yeah. Um, there, there were issues from the very beginning, namely with Ananias and Sapphira, who were these two people in the church who... Um, lied to the apostles and didn't give faithfully in the way that they said they were, and they both fell dead um, in the congregation. So, I mean, immediately you've got you've got issues, yeah. and and then right after that you've got a certain level of infighting among the apostles themselves. And one of the issues that we've talked about before is just the role of Judaism for the early Christians, and does one have to become Jewish in order to become a follower of Jesus? And what about the law that we've all been following all our lives? And what what, what do we do with this stuff? And so very quickly, there uh, it's not just all, you know, rainbows and, and unicorns. Like, it really is um, a, a challenge, and it's just people. It's it's sinful people trying to follow Jesus faithfully together and, and having differences of opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I, I, one thing I will point out is that differences of opinion or disagreements on certain things does not constitute disunity in the scheme of the early church. Um, it is still a universal, unified church, even though there are differences of opinion on things. We live in a world today where if there are any level, uh, if there's any level of difference of opinion, it's like we have to separate from each other. Sure. We cannot, we can't, we're not going to deal with being together. And so as a result, you've got hundreds, if not thousands of Christian denominations now around the world. It's like, man, we can't even... We can't even stomach to be on separate pages when it comes to like second tier and third tier issues. Yeah. Um, so anyway, there is this group of people who would go, "No, we got to get back to that church in Acts two. We got to get back to meeting in the homes. We got to get back to like maybe having a common storehouse and 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 doing all of that kind of stuff." Um, but I would say some of that is based on a, an illusion of purity mm-hmm. and a perception that somehow that church didn't have any problems or didn't struggle with the same things that later churches struggled with. Yeah. Uh, the second group that he mentions would be other Christians who contend that the church and its leaders were exercising liberty that they had in the absence of any divinely authorized pattern. So the idea here is that while the New Testament gives us some descriptive um, language about leadership in the early church, namely as it related to elders and deacons. It gives us Paul writing to people in the church saying, hey, here's here's what you should do in your context at this time. Right. The second group of people wants to say that while those those basic offices of pastor and deacon remain today for pretty much every Christian group out there, that we we don't get like necessarily this prescriptive pat or pattern or design or blueprint for what church leadership should look like throughout the ages in sure. the New Testament. Okay, yeah, because Paul tells Timothy Timothy to elect elders in all mm-hmm. of these areas, right. but it's not like he adds on to that. Oh, and by the way, do this forever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And and it's easy to say well. He's writing to a specific person at a right. specific time okay. in a specific place under specific circumstances. And, I mean, that's a contentious issue to this day. You certainly have some who 
feel like, no, 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 the New Testament does give us a very specific pattern, and it is that there should be elders and deacons, and here's what elders do. Elders are basically pastors and overseers within the church, Mm -hmm. and that the Bible makes no provision for this office of bishop, and, um, and, and, and on and on. And then others who would say, um, maybe that's true on some level, but the scripture doesn't expressly say that that what you just said, which is this is what is forever and mm-hmm. it's what should always be. And so you have this second group who goes, hey, w- like we we can uh, remake or uh, reimagine or resituate governance and leadership and hierarchy to meet the needs of the time. Yeah. And so certainly we've seen that throughout Christian history. And then this third group, which we would relate to, and Shelley relates to Roman Catholicism today, um, Christians that argue that the Holy Spirit so dwelt in the church and guided its decisions that the development of the early centuries in doctrine and church structure were the work not of people, but of God. So when the church um, initiated this uh, era of bishops, that that was not just some some men saying, hey, here's maybe what we should do from a pragmatic standpoint, like this would be the most functional way to lead this enormous group and so forth, but, but rather that this was literally the Holy Spirit yeah. working and speaking through these men. And this has created a situation in the Roman Catholic Church where we're, we're not just looking to Scripture, but we're also looking to the church and the teaching of the church um, and putting those two things on pretty much the same level and That's saying right. that the teaching of the church or what has come down from church councils or what has come down for, through the mouths of bishops or popes, for example, that that's on the same level as the teaching of Scripture. Um, and that's a um, tenuous position. Sure. Because it creates a lot of room for sin to creep in and a lot of uh, room for uh, someone saying, thus saith the Lord, when it really is, thus saith me. Yeah, and and Shelley mentions one of the other things is it it doesn't put a bookend on anything. It does... He says, why, why must we stop with the so-called Catholic centuries? Does God superintend ongoing change in the church structure? Mm, yeah. So, so then anybody with a large enough following could be able to say, like you said, thus saith the Lord, mm-hmm. everybody come follow me, and right. so, here so we go into trouble. You have leadership changes that take place. 100 years, 200 years after Jesus, Mm -hmm. but then there's a point where the church wants to say, and that's all over now, and everything needs to be like it was in the 300s or 400s. Hmm. Um, So that's problematic. It it really is. And and listen, there's a level, I have a level of empathy for all of these groups, I think. Sure. You know, I I definitely empathize with the folks who are like, man, we just want to get back to the bare bones, organic house churchy, you know, kumbaya of the early church. Um, and and yet all we largely know about that is in a few sentences in the book of Acts. That's right. You know, like it's, it, it, we don't really get a great sense of what that actually looked like on like a day-to-day, week-to-week level. Um, we certainly, to my knowledge, don't really get a sense of what the worship of the early church looked like in the book of Acts. 
Um, it's one of the reasons why um, we handed out the the Didache to everybody because the Didache is is possibly one of the best sources for some insight into what the actual rhythms and worship of the early church looked like. Yeah, and so yeah, you see those three groups pop up, um, and uh, you know I think the the primary mode in a lot of evangelical Protestant Christianity in America today would be that second mode where it's like. Um, we, we think these things that we see in the Scripture are important, um, and to some extent we still hold these offices, uh, namely of elder and deacon, yeah. um, or in, in many groups it will just be pastor or pastors and deacons. Um, and then you have some that will also add bishops to the mix as well, um, even though they may not be following or falling in line with this like idea of a historic... Um, apostolic succession type thing. Yeah. So so that kind of caps off the the three main stances. And I, I want to touch on one other thing before we look at how did the bishops exercise mm-hmm. this authority. And it's a quote here from Shelley in the last little part of this section, which he says, you know, there are disagreements in what it means to have bishops and, and what this means in the structure of the church. But he says, even in the third century, Many felt that the coming of episcopacy meant the departure of the spirit. Mm. So, so we've got seemingly universal agreement that this this is what this is what maybe doesn't track for me right here. We've got universal agreement among the church that okay, we've got these roles now, and the spirit isn't doing what the spirit was doing in the Book of Acts. Mm. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's what he's saying. Um, my read on that is the idea that for the apostles, for the earliest early, early church folks, that they were just purely guided by the Spirit, that there wasn't um, any kind of unified human leadership over them to say, here's what the Spirit is saying, mm-hmm. or thus saith the Lord, but instead every individual, every local church was sort of left on their own to listen to the voice of the Spirit and follow. And and so as you get um, into the 200s, you, especially early on in the 200s, I think, you have this now, this true episcopate where you have this true hierarchy in the church and these bishops are starting to wield uh, this power of sort of being the voice of the spirit for everybody. Yeah. And so is it kind of like we do we not we don't need to listen to the spirit anymore. We just need to listen to our bishop. Yeah. And so Shelley, I don't know if he directly connects these two things, the establishment of the bishops with kind of the degradation of morality in the Mm -hmm. early church. But they're certainly coincidental, if nothing else, that now you have these deacons and elders in every church setting. You've got bishops over a group of churches. You've got widespread Christianity, and it's it's still growing rapidly. Mm -hmm. And you also seem to have this slow degradation of morality, maybe a maybe a kind of descent from mm. the same ethic that we did see in some of the first and second century. So with that comes sin and right. and sin in a lot of people in a lot of churches, 
the question gets turned back to these leaders and these bishops. What do we do about these sins? And are they unforgivable? And who's going to make that call? Mm. And so that's what Shelley spends the second kind of half of the topic discussing, which is he he says, starting off this, pa- this um, little section, he says, during the first two centuries, most Christians believe that baptism canceled all sins committed up to that moment in the believer's life. But these post-baptismal lapses called for special treatment. So there are some sins then that need to be dealt with, mm-hmm. especially as the church is still being persecuted. And some of the stuff is very real, specifically apostasy. Right. So he mentions three sins in particular, immorality, um, I think, well, sexual immorality, primarily, uh, murder and apostasy or denying Christ. Mm-hmm. And and that, as we've talked about before, in seasons of persecution, and as you read this, you see these seasons of persecution kind of come and go. There are periods of peace, there are periods of intense persecution. And in seasons of persecution, often Roman citizens are being asked to declare allegiance to whoever the emperor is at the time, um, or in some cases, they're simply being asked to deny Christ. Yeah. Um, rather than just killing Christians, some Roman emperors, um, like uh, Decius, who he talks about here on page 86, um, Decius, he says, was not out to make heroes of right. Christians, because these Christians would be martyred, and then they would be um, essentially deified to some extent within the church community, because it was like, man, they have... They've done an amazing thing. They have gone to their death for Christ. But he wanted to discredit Christianity, so many Christians were tortured until they denied Christ, saying, Caesar is Lord. If a a Christian endured this persecution without denying Christ, he was called a confessor. If a believer under torture uh, did what the Romans demanded, he was classed among the lapsed or the fallen ones. So it was like if you... Um, continue to declare Christ even in torture and death, you will be a martyr for the church and a hero to the church. If you deny Christ under torture, you will be considered an apostate sinner and unable to be allowed back into the church. Um, But that all starts to change um, as we get deeper into the period of the bishops, Um, and it begins to change with this guy named Callistus, um, who was the Bishop of Rome That's right. um, from 217 to 222. And he's the first to start to allow some of these people who have committed these sins back into the church. Um, the other thing that happens here along the way is that you start to see the rise of saints in the church, and in particular, these folks who have been martyred and who have been confessors, who have been faithful in their confession of Christ, even to the point of death. And some new thinking about some of these guys starts to come up, such as maybe they have some kind of special spiritual superpower that has been given to them by God now because of the way that they died and because their faithfulness all the way till death. So not only does the church start to forgive some of these things and allow people in, the church also also starts to appeal to these deceased martyrs in prayer. And, and the church begins to look to them as if maybe they have some sort of special sway with God because of their faithfulness in this life. And thus you begin to have this 
rise of sainthood in the yeah. church. Because up until this point, the saints, in a biblical sense, were just anybody who believed in Christ. But now it's almost like we're developing this next level of like super Christians that we're calling saints who we think have some kind of special power because of their uh, faithfulness in this life. And then that gets teased out even more throughout the centuries to being, it doesn't even have to be about someone being martyred or faithful in their confession all the way to death. It could be about somebody having participated in a a supposed miracle or something like that in their life on earth that could make them a quote-unquote saint. Man, the only stranger thing than this would be if the bishop somehow decided they could take this power from these martyrs and give it by financial means to the people still living, right? Mm. Which I think is on the next page. Touche. Touche. So, okay, so that's that's literally what we get into here is mm-hmm. we've got bishops. Not only that, we have bishops making decisions that are new. These are these are new decisions, especially in the in the case of a guy like Callistus, a bishop mm-hmm. in Rome who is making a decision that deviates from what the church has done up until this point. Right. In accordance with certain sins. Mm-hmm. Um, after that, once you've got different bishops who are disagreeing with each other, you basically create this system of penance, mm-hmm. which didn't exist before, but now exists to say, you've got these confessors yeah. and these martyrs who are somehow elevated to another level of spiritual power. You have these bishops who are willing to administer forgiveness to these I guess, apostates and some Mm -hmm. of the people who committed what the early church was calling these unforgivable sins. Mm -hmm. And they're willing to do that through the practice, which would eventually be known as indulgences. Yes. And, 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 they they think of this not necessarily the sa- the sale of indulgences but just just penance itself the and penance being uh, like this process of contrition like where I I have to go through not only like internal um, repentance but external repentance I have to literally come before the church in sackcloth and ashes yeah. and I have to do like the work of repentance in front of other people, that that becomes, Shelley says, a third sacrament for the church. And and if you remember, the sacraments are called sacraments originally because they were things commanded by Jesus. So um, namely, baptism and communion have um, historically been what are thought of as sacraments. Um but now this starts to get added to the mix as well, and penance is yet another way that the church begins to teach that Jesus is extending grace to people, right. is, is through repentance. And there is some biblical backup for that. That's not totally out of left field. Certainly, Jesus comes calling people to repent and believe um, that the kingdom of God is coming near. So, from the beginning the message of Christ has been a message of repentance, as was the message of John the Baptist as well. But but now the church is starting to add all of these like kind of rules and rituals to doing penance. And as we get deeper into this, they basically start selling forgiveness in the form of what are called indulgences, where, man, I can literally pay uh, this priest to pray to the saints on my behalf or on behalf of a loved one or a family member, and because I paid for it, 
they're going to be good to go. They're going to get into heaven um, or they're going to be forgiven of this sin that they've committed. And that is a big shift. And and it is, as you said, because now this power has been given to these bishops to say, no, this is what we do. We are the church. Yeah. So to cap off this chapter, because it's a bit of a whirlwind, Mm. um, and if you're anything like me, you'll read a chapter like this and you'll think, man, are how much is this structure deviating from Scripture? Mm. And I think that's a natural question. But to cap this off, Shelley does kind of circle back around to the fact that he's he's chronicling what is happening, not necessarily taking a stance that this is the best thing, but this is history. So we're showing what the church did. And there was even some struggle among the bishops and the Christians at the time. And so he, he ends the chapter with the story of Novation, and Cornelius, two bishops who had separate stances on this practice of penance and on on the authority of bishops being able to forgive sins mm-hmm. like in the place of Jesus. Right. And Cornelius takes the stance that yes, a bishop can forgive sins. Mm-hmm. Novation opposes him and is just like far outweighed. Mm-hmm. So the majority now has quickly swayed to, oh, we want this guy to forgive sins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so to ca- to kind of bring this to a close, every week at our church, we take part in a public confession of sin, right? It's a part of our liturgy every week. Um, but what we do not do, what I don't do as one of the pastors, is I don't stand in front of the church and say, hey, because you said these words, I now say you are forgiven of your sin. Right. All we do is look to the teaching of Scripture, which says if we confess our sins, then God is faithful to forgive us through Christ. And so um, that's that may seem like a nuanced thing, but but it is a very different thing. It is one thing for me as a man to say, uh, you are forgiven of your sins, because that is not power God has given to me. It's another thing to say that the Word of God says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful to forgive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, this is a big part of the conflict at this point in time. And what will ultimately win out, at least for a season, is uh, a bishop like Novation, who says, no, we can um, declare that. Or Cornelius. Yeah. Yes, I'm sorry. I flipped them. It, it, it is the position of somebody like Cornelius who says that we could forgive um, even even what the church thinks of as grave sins. So let's stop there for today. Uh, we're going to move on to our next chapter, chapter 8 in the next episode, and we will see you guys then.